The Writer Files, a member of the Podglomerate Network. Greetings, scribes. I have got some exciting news to share. The Writer Files now has an exclusive Patreon community where subscribers will get exclusive access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and content from productivity and publishing experts each month. In the meantime, just head over to patreon.com slash the writer files. It's free to join Patreon to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash the writer files. Help us start something special. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. This is Rainmaker FM, the digital marketing podcast network. It's built on the Rainmaker platform, which empowers you to build your own digital marketing and sales platform. Start your free 14-day trial at rainmakerplatform.com. These are the writer files. A tour of the habits, habitats, and brains of working writers, from online content creators to fictionists, journalists, entrepreneurs, and beyond. I'm your host, Kelton Reed, writer, podcaster, and mediaphile. And each week, we'll find out how great writers keep the ink flowing, the cursor moving, and avoid writer's block. In this episode of The Writer Files, I've asked award-winning journalist Adam Skolnick to join me on a guest segment we call Writer Porn. Sometimes word nerds just need a place to talk shop, and that's what we intend to do here. We'll talk about how a page one New York Times story became a book, the secret literary legacy of Playboy magazine, debunking the urban legend of Jack Kerouac's creative Mount Everest, and tips and tricks to staying focused when you're working on multiple projects across multiple time zones. Just a quick um, introduction of Adam. He is an award-winning globe-trotting travel journalist, and obviously that's kind of a rare thing these days. He is the author and co-author of 25 Lonely Planet guidebooks, um, and he's also written for publications as varied as uh, ESPN.com, Men's Health, Outside, BBC, and Playboy. And he's just now uh, finishing up his first narrative nonfiction book, based on his award-winning New York Times coverage of the death of the greatest American free diver of all time. The title of that book is One Breath, and it is slated for publication in January. Congratulations on that accomplishment. That must feel pretty good. Yeah, it feels, it feels great. It was a big, big weight off my shoulders. <laughs> to say the least, I'm sure. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you know, you you have this this goal in mind and it's driving you, you know, it was, a, it was a, uh, well over a year from the time when, when he died to the point of getting the book deal and researching the book and tagging along with the free divers and kind of embedding myself with his friends and family. Wow. And then, and then, you know, writing it. Uh, and it was just, you know, you're so singly focused for all that time. And then when it's done, you do, you do relax deeply. <laughs> <laughs> and, uh, you actually won a pretty big award from the AP last year, didn't you? 
Well, I don't know how big it is, but it's um, in sports writing. It's it's uh, it's fairly large, and and I was there to do a kind of a more of a general feature on free diving for the New York Times. It was slated to run. This was an event in November 2013 called uh, Vertical Blue. Vertical Blue is like the Wimbledon of free diving, and uh, it's competitive free diving. So the the the, the divers compete in three different disciplines. They hold their breath and they go as deep as possible on that one breath, either with fins or without fins or by pulling a line down and back. And so that's the event and that's the sport. And I was there to do kind of a, uh, because it's a growing sport and more and more people are getting into it either casually or seriously and, and there's schools all opening all over the world. So it's this international sport and I was just there to do a general feature. And when he died, tragically, I just happened to be there 10 feet away. And so it became just a different story right off the bat. And um, that story, I, I wrote it that evening, the first one, the day one story, and it went viral. It became the number one, I think it was New York Times' number one story that day. And then the next day we did a follow-up piece with a group of, group of writers, myself and two others, or three others, excuse me. And both those stories uh, kind of were widely disseminated. And, and I think people were enamored with the sport, enamored with this diver, Nicholas Mavoli. And it ended up, the Times submitted it. I had, no, I had no idea they were submitting it until they were. And they, they submit, you know, all the papers, all the major papers uh, submit to the APSE award. So it's a, it's a newspaper award and it's an organization and they honor the best newspaper sports writing each year. And uh, I was lucky enough to win. Well, it is an amazingly tragic story. And, uh, I know that you spent a lot of time on the road because I was getting um, rogue transmissions from you um, from like, were you in Russia? Yeah. So um, the book starts with Nick's death and then it goes back through his life. And so it's, it's kind of an, um, an into the wild meets shadow divers. Shadow divers was a, was a bestseller about um, some wreck divers and, and their quest to, to discover what this new wreck they'd found, what it was, and to name it, and it was, and there was, there was a lot of death and destruction involved in that, and it was a really compelling book. And, and then Into the Wild, we all know, is a is an iconic book and Krakauer's first book, yeah. and it's a great book. And just like McCandless, Chris McCandless, and Into the Wild, Nick had a story where he had, you know, kind of a he, he had an even more troubled upbringing than McCandless, and he was searching for something, and he found it free diving after. Many, many other forays into acting, into, into protest, and uh, ended up finding it in freediving. The water was his refuge. The water was where he was free. And he ended up finding the sport kind of later in terms of athletics. He found it when he was uh, 30. His first competition, he broke the American record. So he was just this gifted athlete, a tremendous athlete, not just as a, as a swimmer, uh, he was also a tremendous athlete on a bike. He was, uh, you know, all near X Games quality BMXer, um, and just an incredible, incredible soul. So, you know, following him is a no-brainer. You want to, you want to tell that story. It's an inspiring story. And so then I start with his story, and I kind of go back and forth between him and the 2014 freediving season. And so for that, I, I went to Roatan for the Caribbean Cup, which is another one of the kind of, I guess you could, if you use a tennis metaphor, one of the Grand Slam events. And then the World Championships, which is obviously the World Championships, and that's in, that was in Sardinia, Italy. And, uh, and then also back to Vertical Blue a year later. And in the meantime, I spent time with two of the great uh, Russian freedivers, excuse me, Natalia Molchanova and her son Alexei Molchanov uh, are the two 
two of the very best freedivers in the world. Natalia is the very best f- female freediver of all time. And Alexi has the deep, is the deepest diver with fins. So he's one of the two best freedivers currently uh, in the world. And so I spent time with them in Russia. So, so, you've, so you've been a little busy. Yeah, yeah, I've been busy. <laughs> and, what, and then what, bridged those two sto- what bridges those two stories in the book, you know, Nick's story and his rise uh, you know, from the time he's a child to, to getting into the sport. And then the 2014 season, what, what bridges those two things together is the work of some doctors who are trying to figure out what exactly happened to Nick because his death was something the sport of freediving had never seen before. It wasn't the type of um, accent that you would have normally seen in freediving. It was, it was very unique. It sounds like a, just a really captivating story and um, actually can't wait to read it. Thanks, man. I just find fascinating the fact that you you are a guy who is kind of always on the road or you travel um, many, many months out of the year. You kind of don't have a permanent home. And then you're constantly working on like a uh, like a handful of different deadlines simultaneously. One of those has been doing some writing for Playboy. Um, I guess w- my first question is, how do average citizens react when you mention that you have published with them or working for them? Average citizens? I don't know. How, how does your mom react? <laughs> um, average, I don't know any average citizens. <laughs> Sorry. Um, no, I think uh, it's funny. You know, some people, it depends on, depends on who it is. You know, some people react knowing that Playboy has this rich literary history. And, and, but more often, the younger folks I talk to laugh and they have no idea of this rich history that Playboy has. And so they, I have to explain to them there's, there's articles. And then, of course, when I, I did, I, I just finished up a story about freediving for Playboy that'll be out in May. And that, um, you know, going into the freediving community, explaining to them that I'm going to write a story on play, for Playboy about the sport, you know, some, some were just like, why would you write? You know, they, they were just mystified that that's a thing. So yeah. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. I mean, I think my theory is that people, uh, people go elsewhere for their... <laughs> for their naked pictures and that has somehow actually dimmed playboy's history in people's minds when in reality it's still here it's still kicking and still it's still publishing good writers sure um so so it's a generational thing maybe it's um not that generation who's saying i only read it for the articles any longer they don't even know that it has or had articles to begin with or that some of the most famous um, authors of the 20th century published there, including Arthur C. Clarke, Ian Fleming, Nabokov, Chuck Palahniuk, Murakami, Margaret Atwood. Uh, the list goes on and on and on. I mean, yeah, you recognize some of those names. Yeah, Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Joseph Heller. It's an honor for me. I mean, I, I think Playboy is kind of upheld an ideal. And so it was, a, and it was always a progressive ideal. And it was, a, it was a pushing America forward ideal. That's how it kind of was founded. And part of that is this great literary tradition. My favorite article probably of all time out of Playboy is the interview that Alex Haley did with Malcolm X, which subsequently led to the autobiography of Malcolm X, which is one of the great works of of nonfiction in American history. So Playboy has this incredibly rich tradition. It's an honor to be associated with them. They have a full bar in their lobby. I love it. <laughs> um, another one of those uh, great interviews, I think, was with Hunter S. Thompson, who, oddly enough, uh, also wrote for the New York Times and, you know, pretty accomplished journalist himself. Another strange factoid, he relocated to Hawaii to work on a book. It kind of sounds like a familiar theme. <laughs> yes. 
Did you write your book in Hawaii? No, but oh. um, but I had relocated to Hawaii to do a story on um, the GMO corn seed farms that have kind of cropped up where the old sugarcane plantations once were. And um, there is one community that's being imp- heavily impacted by tainted dust that's blown into their community and damaged property and, and, and impacted public health. So I went out there, moved out there to cover that story. And in Hawaii, it's very hard to parachute in and tell a story well. Uh, you know, there's trust issues with, with people, outsiders, and it's just very a local, you know, from, from the surf culture on, it's a very locals, locals only type spot. And so it was helpful for me to kind of to rent a house there and, and live there uh, while I, while I burrowed into this story. And the person who came and shot that story, uh, a photographer named Leah Barrett, had just come from the Caribbean Cup in 2013 and where Nick had hit his 100-meter dive. And she was kind of pitching, hey, we should be covering free diving together. And so that was the whole genesis of me going to Vertical Blue in the first place. And, and that story also led me to connect with the New York Times in the first place. That story came out in Salon. Um, but it, it connected me up with the New York Times science reporter there. So uh, it was this kind of odd turn of events that led me to to be in the Bahamas that day. And Hawaii was definitely part of it. And, you know, as far as me living overseas and working on stuff, that's something I've done frequently. A couple of the places I've I've covered for Lonely Planet include Indonesia and Thailand, which I've covered each several times. And whenever I'm there... I uh, and do those jobs. I tend to stay in the country to write the write the book up. So write my write my manuscript. So I've done that several times. I've done the same thing uh, when I when I kind of was working on stories, reporting about uh, Myanmar and East Burma uh, and the humanitarian crisis there. Uh, I've I've you know kind of embedded in the community for some time to tell those stories. So it's something I've done. It's something I'll continue to do. I enjoy doing that part of it and kind of staying longer than most most uh, reporters would. And just a quick aside to revisit the exclusive Writer Files Patreon community, where subscribers get access to uncut ad-free interviews, a writer's happy hour, bonus breakdowns, and a lot more. I know that for serious writers, it can be more distracting than ever to cut through the noise, stay productive, and home in on what's happening in the publishing industry. Over eight years, we've provided a looking glass into the habits of professional writers and publishing industry insiders. And as your humble host, I've decided to launch a membership-based Patreon for serious scribes to cut through the noise, swap tips and tricks, and hang out with like-minded peers. Just head over to patreon.com slash the writer files for bonus writing resources, monthly episode breakdowns, writer's happy hour, a community of your peers, ad-free episodes, and more. It's free to join to get a preview and you can upgrade anytime. That's patreon.com slash the writer files. Help us start something cool and special. Keep calm and write on. Let me turn the conversation briefly to productivity and you know, as you're working on different long form and, and short form pieces, um, especially when you're working like on a hard deadline, but you're in like a beautiful place like Bali or Hawaii, um, how, how do you stay focused? First of all, the main thing for me is uh, I give myself a words per day quota. So if you're talking about a, a longer piece or sh- I mean, even with shorter pieces, I do that now. But when you're talking about a manuscript that's upwards of 50,000, 100,000 words, right? So this, the, you know, most books are over 100,000 words um, or around 100,000 words. Um, Lonely Planet manuscripts can vary anywhere from, you know, 30,000 to 
80,000, 90,000 words I've had. So it's basically the same amount of, uh, amount of material. It's just different type of material. But so in order to hack through material like that, you have to give yourself a words per day quota. And once you do that, you find that you can meet it. And, and that's, I think, the hardest thing for ri- newer writers or younger writers or, or writers, that, uh, that to, any writer really, is, is, to, is the focus, the expansion of that, of that focus. Everyone can sit down when they're inspired and pound out something, can make it sound good. But, but what, if they, what if they're tired or dragging or, or not feeling it? You know, how do they then push on? And you have to, in order to put together any sort of big piece of work, you have to be able to push through good days and bad days. And frankly, even the bad days can turn out better work than the good days sometimes. So it's just a matter of, of being there, showing up, doing it. And so I give myself a 3,000-word-a-day quota wow. that I try, I try to meet, um, whether I'm doing a Lonely Planet guidebook or I'm, I'm doing my, my book. And if I'm doing a magazine story, a feature story type thing, where you know I'll still try to turn out a lot of words. I might, I might do 2,000 words a day then because I'm kind of going over the words a, a bit more carefully at first. Whereas with books, you can just put out this you know, massive amount of work and then go back through and edit and cut afterwards. With a magazine article, maybe you do a little bit less of that. Maybe you don't, you don't let yourself just ramble for 10,000 words because that'll make it hard to cut. On that note, because um, I know a lot of online content creators and, and novelists in general are working on multiple projects simultaneously. So when you say have your 3,000 word a day quota, I guess the question is when you have a, a manuscript uh, length project, like a 100,000 word project, but then you also have uh, smaller projects that you're working on on the side, how do you balance the two? I think there's, there's two things. First of all, like some... Before you're going to sit down and write a big piece of work, unless it's fiction, and even if it is fiction, there's the research element. So for, with me, I end up in a rhythm where I'm researching, and then I'm writing, then I'm researching, then I'm writing. It's, it's, and, and then if I have overlapping deadlines, which does happen, usually it's when I'm researching something bigger, then I might take on write-ups of something smaller, or I might have to research for two different things at the same time. I've also done things where I've researched all day, and then at night I've written on a different project. So that's happened. And then um, recently when I had to do a draft of the Playboy story and turn that in prior to the submission date of my book, I did take you know a few days out of that work on one breath to dedicate to the magazine article. So I'm a kind of a one-trick pony. I have a hard time multitasking, to be honest with you. I, t- I tend to give everything to what I'm doing at that moment. And so that's, that's kind of what I do. But so, I, I, you know, for me, multitasking is, okay, tomorrow I'm going to do this in the day, and at night I'm going to do 1,500 words because I can't do 3,000 because I'm only going to do a night session or something like that. And I'll just have that marked in my head. That's, how I'll, that's the best multitasking I can probably do. Um, but I try, you know, it happens. You, you, can't, you can't help it. If you're doing a project that's three months long, something else might come up in between that you have to connect to. And so usually what I'll do is I'll disconnect from the larger project for a period of time, a couple of days, and do the smaller one. That's usually what I do because I, it's, just, it's just easier for me to do that than try to do them all at once. That single-minded focus is, is good. Um, I, and I definitely ascribe to that. Subscribe to that? Do I aspire to that yes i don't know i have to look up, i have to you could ascribe aspire and subscribe to it <laughs> just a quick pause to mention that the writer files is brought to you by the rainmaker platform the complete website solution for content marketers and online entrepreneurs 
Find out more and take a free 14-day test drive at rainmaker.fm slash platform. Speaking of another author, another famous author who uh, published in Playboy, um, Jack Kerouac actually published in Playboy. And he started his uh, journalistic career, and I didn't know this, as a sports reporter for the New York World Telegram. I'm sure that exists still. Yeah, right. (laughs) Most well-known for writing a uh, 120,000-word novel on the road in three weeks. I put three weeks in quotes um, on this 120-foot-long scroll of uh, paper that he you know, famously taped together or whatever. Right. Didn't Jim Ursay buy the scroll recently? I don't know. The original or one of the... The owner of the Colts. I think he bought the original scroll. <laughs> That's wild. I did get a chance to see that scroll um, actually here in Denver. I bought that hardcover. They released it hardcover. Is that right? Um, yeah, I think right around the auction time, they finally released it hardcover, and all the real names are in there that he doesn't use. That you know, he uses his own name. He uses William Burroughs' name. He uses yeah. you know, Alan Ginsberg's name, and and of course uh, Neil Cassidy's name. I, I mean, what I find most interesting about the fact that you know it's kind of this um, urban legend or this kind of creative Mount Everest that he sat there uh, for three weeks with this kind of single uh, pointed intention and and supposedly wrote this 120,000 word novel in those 20, 21 days on speed, you know, it's, it's, it's an urban legend that kind of writers hold dear to their heart. And I read recently that that might not be as accurate as we thought it was because according to, uh, Sarah Stadola's, uh, book process, the writing lives of great authors, which I highly recommend. I, I love it. I'm, I, it's a pure writer porn in my opinion. Um, but Kerouac wrote six drafts of On the Road mm. in in the three years leading up to those three weeks where he finally nailed it. Mm. When he wasn't sitting at that typewriter, he was taking notes prolifically, much like a, um, you do, like journalists do. Yep. Um, so when he was crisscrossing the country and, and meeting all these crazy people and collecting all these stories, you know, that was part of his process. And, and so really he wrote that novel over, over three years' time. Yeah, the first draft, you mean? The first draft. It wasn't published for, what, another six years? Yeah, I mean, I, I think that everyone loves the, the wonderkind genius story, so that's probably where that came from. Plus, it's you know he did sit down there for three weeks and do the scroll and do his 120,000 words. And if you read the published version of that, um, you'll see there's no indentations or anything like that. So you kind of have to, you can see his mind, kind of his manic mind moving and working in a way that you can't when you read the polished work. But, you know, it, so there's something raw there. Of, co- of course, the, the polished version is a classic, probably one of my favorite books of all time. Yeah, it can be daunting when you start to start to compare yourself to other writers. And I think that's, that's what that does. When you hear about that, you're like, God, I'm not capable of that. Does that mean I'm not capable of writing a book as good as On the Road? Does that mean I'm not capable of making a living as a writer? I think those are the kinds of neurotic mind loops that we tend to go into, especially writers who are kind of internal and in their head a lot anyway. Sure. At least I am. So yeah, so I think that debunking that myth is really good because uh, obviously you don't get to be where he got to at such a young age without an incredible work ethic. And it's not about doing speed and sitting down for three weeks, but it's about doing it all the time. Yeah, And and I think that's what he did, and that's why he was so great. Flexing that muscle, because he had really been writing from an early, early age. His father introduced him to writing. He had his own printing press. You know, he started early, and I think by the time he was 22, uh, his writings 
amounted to something like 600,000 words. And I think even William Burroughs said that when he met uh, Jack Kerouac um, close to that time, he probably had written closer to a million words. Yeah. Um, so he was flexing that muscle, so to speak. And, you know, I mean, that's a, that's an, a monumental feat, but he was clearly a professional athlete in the sport. Yeah. I mean, it's like, it's, it's the classic what Gladwell thing now, the 10,000 hours. I mean, he had that real young. And so that's what, that's what did it. So it's, there's, again, it's no mystery why he was so great. He found his voice young because he was writing so much and it became so natural for him. And then, yeah, I mean, there probably was something happening creatively by him doing this. I'm going to sit down for three weeks and do it till it's done. Do it right. This one last time. I mean, you, we can't, we can't deep, we can't completely let go of that myth because there had to be some sort of chemical reaction with the muse that made it so great that time he sat there. Otherwise he wouldn't have continued to sit there. So, um, there was something to that last gasp, you know, three week marathon that he put up, pulled off, uh, that I think matters. Um, but yeah, I think that's not what makes him great. What makes him great is the work before and after. I mean, he was meticulously organized, this guy. Um, he had files and notebooks and kind of kept everything pretty neatly organized. I think a lot of his beat, beat friends who would visit his apartment would always marvel at the fact that he was just, you know, kind of a very regimented guy. Um, obviously, had been, I think he was, a, he was also a merchant marine, if I'm not mistaken. So, yeah, yeah. So when you're traveling the world, Adam Skolnick, and, yeah. and um, you know, you're working in all these different mediums because you're probably using not only notebooks, photographs, um, audio interviews. I'm not the most organized guy in the world. I'm not, you are very organized, Kelton Reed. I am not, I'm not the most organized. So what I've been, what I, when I first started, cause you know, I was a travel writer, uh, before I was doing harder course stories and, and I still do a lot of travel stories and obviously the lonely planet stuff's all travel related. I would just use moleskin notebooks or even whatever notebooks I could find on the road if I ran out of notebooks and I kept it all in notebooks kept all those notebooks on me. And when it came time to do the write-up, I would just uh, kind of go through the notebooks at the time. Um, and then when Lonely Planet started to go to a, a shared publishing platform, they, you know, I was part of the experimental phase and one of the kind of higher-ups that came on the road with us, and we did this in Colorado, as a matter of fact, um, asked me to start taking notes in my phone just to see if I liked it. And at first, I didn't like it at all. And I felt like I was losing something in terms of creativity with the mind and the, you know, the, the whole idea of the, of the, of the hands and the brain and, you know, they're connected. And if I'm writing with a, you know, if I'm writing something analog, then my brain's working differently and somehow opening more organically, um, which I, which is really probably just my, my own laziness, not wanting to have to adapt to using this app and using my thumbs. But, you know, pretty soon after he said, just try it for a week and then you can go back to the notebooks if you want. Um, but pretty soon after, I found that putting it into the phone right away, uploading it right away, actually makes it easier and makes me, a less organized person, more organized. So I started to use the phone, uh, and I now use all sorts. So I use the, I use the phone um, when, I'm, when I'm interviewing subjects. I'll use, I'll use the phone for notes sometimes. I'll use my notebook sometimes, depending on the situation. And then I'll also use the auto recorder. So I use... Um, I, I use a uh, HD re- voice recorder, I think is what it's called. HD voice recorder, I'll tell you right now. If people want to know. Yeah, voice recorder HD is the app I use because you can back it up to Dropbox. And so I do that for all my, for, for 
just some interviews. So I'll, I'll use any, any number of those three things. And then afterwards, I'll have to transcribe the voice interviews. I've done most of that myself, although I do farm it out sometimes to transcription services if I'm under the gun. And that's just something I've started to experiment with lately. And then in terms of the book, which I don't have call to do this for anything else, because if I'm doing a Lonely Planet guidebook or a magazine story, I can keep everything into one kind of notes file. I don't need more than one notes file. And then I can email that to myself and put it into a Word document. Now all my notes are already transcribed from the notebook, which is my phone. And it's all right there. And then I can go through it and highlight what I need and look through it. I don't have to do much. Although when I'm writing a magazine story, what I'll do is I'll outline the story and then I'll take, I'll go through those notes and I'll take the chunks that I think relate to the subject or the the, the turn in the story that I'm working on, I'll, I'll slot that into that out in that piece in the outline. And so I have it all there for me. So that's how I'll organize it right before I, I do the work in terms of this book. There was, you know, literally hundreds of interviews. I mean, hundreds and uh, I mean, I can't, I couldn't tell you right now cause I haven't counted them all out, but it's, it's over a hundred interviews. So, um, so I'm interviewing different people about different things in different places. So then I started to kind of slot them in into their own separate document. I'm just using Word documents. So I'll just slot in those notes or that transcribed interview into the North Carolina pile or the New York City pile or the Russia pile or the Sardinia pile, that kind of stuff. And that's how I did that. And then when it came down to the outline, again, with the book, I did a, a more detailed outline. And then when it came, you know, I started slotting in those big slabs of notes into those sections. So when I started working on it, it was all there for me. So that's kind of how it worked. I probably had a thousand pages, thousand pages, of word pages and notes to work on. You've just got this huge raw block of clay, so to speak, that you start molding from there. But you got to start with something. And that's uh, pretty amazing. Last qu- quick question for Adam Skolnick. Can you give us a couple of recommendations for favorite nonfiction reads you've uh, read recently? I read Beyond the Beautiful Forevers, which is beautiful. Catherine Boo, I believe, is the author. Beautiful book about uh, the Mumbai slums. Uh, Zaitun, a few years ago, I read that. It's one of my favorite nonfiction books of all time. That's about a handyman who uh, was caught in the floods in New Orleans after Katrina. Yeah. And it's just a beautiful book by Dave Eggers, and I highly recommend that. Great one. And then Harry Potter is my f- probably my favorite nonfiction book I've ever read. <laughs> J.K. Rowling. Hmm. Amazing. Amazing how I'm she embed- embedded herself into that world. <laughs> I found it magical. Oh, wait. I'm not familiar. <laughs> You're not familiar with that I'm work? I'm familiar with that author or that Oh, that author. thank you so much for coming on thanks for having me we will speak with you in another episode very soon i appreciate your uh, time remember every great sculpture starts with a raw block of clay keep working and eventually it will start to look like something thanks for flipping through adam's file with me if you enjoyed this episode of the writer files feel free to leave a comment or a question on the website at writerfiles.fm you can also easily subscribe to the show in itunes and get updates on new episodes. And please leave a rating or review in iTunes to help other writers find us. You can find me on Twitter, at Kelton Reed. You can find Adam, at Adam Skolnick. And you can find more writer porn, at writer porn. Cheers. Talk to you next week. <laughs>